0: This is an ABC podcast. You never seem to get insects splattered all over your windscreen after a night drive anymore, do you? And that smattering of insect body parts had signified some sort of abundance of life. So many insects that hundreds could be wasted on the front of your mum's Ford Escort on the way home from indoor cricket. You might have read about this anecdote... Or maybe you've even experienced it for yourself. And it's not that this story isn't true or is true. It's that it's, well, it's not science. And the way we tell stories about the environment is actually very important when it comes to conservation. And in particular, the conservation of species that are less thought of, like insects.
1: 80% of all life on Earth is invertebrates when you include plants and everything else. So they are the largest proportion of life on Earth,
2: yet look at what gets the funding. How they expect to get all these answers when they never
0: give us money to find them out? Today, following on from the last couple of weeks of insect-themed episodes here on Off Track, we're going to bury ourselves in the topic of insect conservation. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of how research works at the government
1: level.
2: So I don't know want all these answers. But no-one's ever supported the work to have the answers ready when somebody needed them. It doesn't just happen overnight.
0: Three expert guests join me, Dr Ann Jones, in today's Off Track, and all of them have strong words about the current state of the conservation of Australia's insects. Dr Kate Umbers, who starred in last week's program about skyhoppers, Kate is a champion for the ecosystems of the Australian Alps and is currently lecturer in zoology at the University of Western Sydney. Dr Manu Saunders has an interest in ecosystem services and in particular, the way that insects create links between habitats and humans, say in farming landscapes, for example. Manu is a lecturer in ecology and biology at the University of New England. And Dr Nick Porch is a prolific photographer of tiny things and he's a paleoecologist who consequently has a long view on biodiversity issues and the loss of species. He's a senior lecturer at Deakin University. So, Kate, can you tell me what the actual insect population trajectories are in Australia? It's a great question.
2: It's a question that we have a little bit of data on from a few places. You know, for, for invertebrates in general, it, you know, we have an infinitesimally tiny amount of data, I think is, is probably the answer. So, for invertebrates in general, I think it's a pretty safe we don't know. For insects, particularly flying insects, particularly flying insects in Europe, there seems to be some evidence that we're declining. But there's also really sensible, logical reasons to expect that insect numbers are declining,
0: Right, for the same reasons we're seeing the loss of diversity in almost every single type of flora and fauna in Australia. Habitat destruction by humans, climate change, feral animal predation and competition and the like. So in what way in particular are we data deficient here in Australia? What are we missing?
2: (laughs) We're missing everything, I think. Except for bogong moths, we seem to be missing pretty much everything. Or at least there's no real, there's no systems in which we have a good understanding of their abundance over time and and spatial extent. I think that's fair to say. Would you guys say that? Yeah, I would
3: agree. Dr Nick Porch. I think one of the things that we need to consider that's very different about Australia relative to the Northern Hemisphere, in particular Europe and North America, is that if you to look at the fauna of somewhere like the UK, uh, most of the species were described in the mid-19th century. There's a large number of people that are interested in invertebrates, whether it's scientists or citizen scientists, the general public. Whereas in our part of the world, Australia, it's a large continent, it's mega-diverse, it has approximately 10% of the fauna in most groups, and it's really poorly known from a taxonomic point of view, from an ecological point of view, from a distribution point of view, and therefore from understanding, I think, what trajectories are. Uh, would you agree, Manu?
1: Yeah, there, there's a couple of reasons why there's more knowledge, I think, from those areas. And I think it's just a longer history of interest and collecting that data, combined with the fact that they have fewer species than us <laughs> in in most of the Northern Hemisphere countries. So if bees, for example, I think there's only 200 or 300 or something species of bee in the UK, whereas in Australia we've got 2,000 So, and we still haven't described most of them.
3: Is it like a weight of numbers? Things that work in two different directions, right? In the sense that in Australia there's very few people and large numbers of taxa, yeah. <laughs> whereas in most of the northern parts of the world there's the opposite. <laughs>
0: Manu, you've written about the problem of the insect apocalypse narrative. This storyline started to gain prominence in about 2017 after a paper was published in PLOS One that indicated there was going to be a catastrophic drop in insect levels. And critically for our discussion, I think, it had a good heading on the media release, right? Insectocalypse. And people like me, well, we eat that stuff up. But Manu, you've written at length about the issues with this narrative
1: um yes it is an interesting narrative and there's a lot of complex issues behind it and i think most scientists agree that there's a problem and we've known this for decades it's not news that that biodiversity is in decline it's not news that insects are under threat from climate change and pesticides and and whatever we've known this for a very very long time it's just no one has really paid attention especially with regard to insects specifically And so these couple of studies that were published that got lots of attention through targeted media campaigns and so on really brought that issue to the forefront, but it it was this sort of (laughs) sad situation where on the one hand the the papers themselves and, and that one in particular that got most attention were very flawed and there were huge issues with the science behind those papers. But they raised this issue in the media that got a lot of people talking about it and raised awareness and so on. So there was this kind of ethical quandary, I guess, where people were trying to justify that it was OK because everyone was suddenly caring about insects. So, so let's just run with it. But at the same time, the science that was being taken the most notice of was, was flawed and had issues. As a global long-term media narrative, it has potential to do damage to public understanding of science and how the scientific process works. All the issues surrounding that narrative have kind of muddied the waters a bit. Companies that produce pesticides were then using that as justification to say, well, look, see, there isn't a problem because the science was flawed and so on. So it started to get really messy very quickly. And these are the dangers that we see when we kind of run with an exaggerated Narrative purely with the goal of just getting people aware
2: and, and raising interest, which isn't necessarily the same as acting. I think Manu's sort of taken on the responsibility for all scientists of the world to to make sure that you represent this information scientifically and that we we stick to that rigor. I'd
3: be interested, Manu, to to hear what you think would be something that would be useful for trying to resolve some of these questions I mean what sort of data would we need
1: there's no, you know there is no baseline data for most groups in Australia we don't have the long-term data we can't go back in time to collect it I think um, the actual proving that there is a decline or is or is not happening in Australia is impossible and it's kind of pointless wasting time arguing about whether that's happening or not I think We know that biodiversity is in trouble. We know that all these problems are happening. We've known this for decades. I think that this insect apocalypse sort of narrative and the argument over which species is declining where and every time a new paper comes out and then people nitpick over the methods and say, well, they didn't do this analysis and so on, I think that that's kind of distracting us from the fact that we could just be doing stuff now like... (laughs) changing regulations over pesticides, change, doing something about climate change, all these things that are not happening that we know can actually have an effect.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. It's like there's, there's there's a lot of unknowns, but there's some things that are obviously clearly good things to do. There, there are obvious things that should be done, can be done. You don't need to have data on all 120,000 named Australian invertebrate species and their decline in order to justify the fact that o- the overuse and abuse of pesticides is a silly thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a bit of a no-brainer.
3: It, it actually sounds very similar to the, the, the recent talk about the Great Barrier Reef, where we really know what we need to do and what the issues are, But and you don't need the long-term data necessarily to know where we should be heading.
2: exactly. We just need people to not chuck it into the too hard basket, and I think that's that's typically, I think, what has happened. I think because of the taxonomic impediment that we face, and because of the lack of baseline data, invertebrates, i.e., essentially all the animals, like ninety nine, yeah. you know, like nine. We're talking about ninety nine point nine percent of all animal life in this country on Earth. Just go like, yeah, <laughs> we don't know. It's too hard. Let's just focus on koalas. Yeah. <laughs> We can say something about that. We can put pretty pictures on the news, you know. I'm not totally against koalas, but...
0: <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> All right, I am. No, no. <laughs> Me too. I feel like this is a good time to ask then about how we can make good conservation decisions in a data-deficient environment. Most conservation
2: decisions are made on on, you know, certainly almost all decisions are made on incomplete data, and certainly most conservation decisions are made on, you know, less than perfect data, so it's not, you know, it wouldn't be groundbreaking.
0: Right, but how can we move forward from here?
3: If we're talking about conservation, then one of the fundamental things we need to know is what places are important for biodiversity, and without baseline data, I think it's really difficult to get that happening. And one of the problems that we have in our part of the world is the fact that we really don't know what is where. And I'll give a really nice example. So there's a called stag beetles, uh, the family Lucanidae, and they're really charismatic beetles. People all around the world are fascinated by them. And you would think that being relatively large beetles, they're really well known. But the reality is that over the last six or eight months, I've been involved with a couple of bushfire recovery projects. And we've discovered new species of stag beetles as a result of these Projects and and even in this group of incredibly well large, being up to about let's say two, twenty mil long, which is fairly large, uh, charismatic beetles that we thought were really well known. We're finding new things all the time, and that's because there's there's very little effort to get out there and do basic surveys, so we can understand where things live. So in that sense, you know, when we think about conservation decisions. You know, often it's which which mammals live in certain places and and those places are therefore important for conservation well baseline data in terms of invertebrates would be knowing which species live in which places and in particular i think knowing places that are important for many species individually for most of these particular sets of organisms, we really don't have much information. And that's because of a couple of things. One is that there's really no efforts put in by most governments to try and understand where invertebrates are. And the other thing is something that Kate mentioned before, I think, was the taxonomic impediment. There's not enough people around who can actually work on these things to actually help us figure out where all these different things are. And just just as a really simple example, um, Coming out of this bushfire work is a whole pile of uh, beetles and in this case there's a little genus called genuacales. Genuacales is known from three species that occur on the coast, east coast of New South Wales. And in our bushfire work, I think we've got about 15 species and talking to one of my colleagues at the Australian National Insect Collection, Hermes escalona, he was looking through the collections there and he looked at he's so far looked at 30% of the specimens of Genuacalis, and he's up to over 100 species. So here's a group known from three species. It probably has 200 to 300 plus species and yet less than 1% of them are known. So if you think about that, in terms of conservation, there are people, probably like most of us, who would like to conserve things like genuacoles. They record the history of our continent, the changing environments, the evolution of the fauna. And none of those, of course, would ever be included in any conservation decision. So, lack of knowledge from a couple of perspectives is always going always to be a fairly significant problem, but we can work towards uh, getting better information by choosing certain groups Upon which we could focus, for example, to develop better knowledge.
2: Yeah, I was. The only thing I was going to say, Nick, was <clears throat> that just to clarify, it's not that we're missing the people that can do this work; is that we're missing the jobs for the people to do the work. <laughs> yeah, good point.
1: Yeah, and th- this issue of lack of knowledge and lack of data—it's this catch-22 situation that when you look at the way governments do policy and the way they create it and want to, you know, make announcements in their budgets and all the rest of it. They want hard data. They want to make an announcement about something that the public is aware of and knows about and also that they have data to back up. So they can't do that with insects because we simply don't have the data. So they kind of steer clear of that being, again, being put into the too hard basket, as Kate was saying. There is a solution and I think that getting governments to think more to that ecosystem level of conservation instead of this species centric model, which they tend to focus on because it's easy. You know, you pick koalas, everyone knows what a koala is, everyone cares about them. But, you know, we know from a lot of evidence from here and overseas and and so on, that species centric conservation doesn't always work as an umbrella for general biodiversity conservation. So if we actually want effective conservation policy to protect the things that we don't know anything about yet, we need to take that ecosystem approach and go, well, let's protect the ecosystem function and the processes that are happening there instead of just focusing on picking out a special species that we think we should care more about.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think maybe that, like, we can also just assume that we don't know what the diversity is. We, know, we have estimates of what we don't know we don't know. We have described about 25% of the fauna. So we're therefore aware that there's about 75% of the biodiversity out there that's undescribed. And if we use the data that we have to identify hotspots and diversity, refugia and all those things that we have good modelling data for, we can make sensible, clever predictions about where the biodiversity is likely to be without having to have really formally described everything as well. You know, so... We have a lot of tools at our disposal to do this in a clever way, but I think Manu's right. Like, without that sort of the pin-up species that so often is a vertebrate, we just don't seem to to have any, I don't know whether it's political traction or what exactly um, it is, what you would call it.
0: Is, the, is there actually a, a space in the system, the current conservation systems that we have at governmental levels, that an ecosystem approach could actually be taken? I think it should be,
1: and I think that, there is evidence that, that that approach works and a lot of governments and international organisations are moving towards that approach because they know that it's more effective
2: for long-term conservation. I was thinking about this this problem of having to um, list species individually. and <clears throat> That causes major problems. We need to think more about listing things at higher taxonomic levels, so like genus or family level, so that we can overcome the taxonomic impediment and um, get more protection for things. And it would be awesome if we could, you know, assess their conservation status as a group and get more done that way. So the reason we want to do that is because if things are listed, especially in Australia, if things are listed within the EBPCA, then they have legal protection. And although that doesn't always translate into meaningful on-the-ground protection, it at least has the potential to, because a lot of places, a lot of agencies can't act On species that don't appear in that list.
1: Yes, it is hard. I think that the reason species level conservation listings have been so popular, and it's not just in Australia, it's globally, IUCN does it as well, like Kate just said, and and most other countries. Um, And the reason it's easy is because you can name a species and you can put data on it and you can say this, we know exactly what's happening to koalas or whatever. When you move up levels beyond the particular taxonomic groups to communities or ecosystems or whatever, it becomes harder to try and define bit here, this patch within this boundary is protected and that bit's not. You can't like it, it just becomes a lot harder. That's partly why it's never kind of taken off like the the threatened species approach has it's not to say that it shouldn't, it's just that we need to work harder to try and find a way to make it work. And I think this comes back to the ecosystem services and taking conservation approaches by trying to sustain, you know, the function and the processes, ecological processes that happen in a system to deliver those services and sustain those services can often be more effective in preserving everything that's in there when you don't know what's in there. Um, So... (laughs) When we get to those issues of well, oh, we don't know what's there. We don't. We, why should we protect this patch? We don't know that there's any. There's no koalas in it, so who cares? Well, move on from that and go. Well, this patch of forest is providing water quality services. It's providing pollination services. Whatever it's doing, and that's why it's worth
2: protecting. And then, I mean. <laughs> Is it the case that there is no patch of forest we can do without, right? Like, I mean, there's not like there's a patch of there's not like there's a patch of forest out there that's just bludging. Just being like, Yeah, we're not really providing (laughs) any services, we're just kind of just going through the motions over here. Yeah. Maybe if we want to get cynical and maybe that's the core of the problem, is that like if you if you define places of value by something that isn't present everywhere. And you can justify cutting down some of it (laughs) when that thing that you decide to value is not present. Um, Once you start valuing stuff like ecosystem services, i.e. life support systems for humans, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, well, we need everything we've got and we need to restore stuff we've destroyed. You know, there's a lot of the
1: assessment processes that we use and the metrics that we use to assess the quality of things in in terms of, of biodiversity and ecosystems and so on are all based on this superficial attributes mm. that don't necessarily mm-hmm. like, you know, numbers mm-hmm. of species or height of vegetation or something like that that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what interactions are mm-hmm. actually happening in there.
2: Yeah, no, uh, yeah, that's right. And I guess the sort of the cliche would be that there's more than the sum of its parts.
0: I can see that that could have a huge impact for Australian conservation, especially on top of the listing of specific species. Because if you could list an ecosystem service, so like the water purification or oxygen manufacture, It would make any human developments responsible for looking after all of the nature that feeds into that ecosystem service. So rather than just the tree kangaroo or a specific bird, for example, just because the work on that particular species has reached a specific bureaucratic threshold, you'd be protecting nature as a whole.
1: You have to step back at some point and think, well, what... What exactly are we trying to protect here? And at the end of the day, it's biodiversity and the Earth as a whole that we need to save. And so, you know, do we do we throw billions of dollars at one species or a couple of species, or do we try and take a broader approach that's actually going to benefit more um, species and whole communities and everyone?
2: Yeah, like there's a there's a pragmatic point in there, I think, as well, which is to do with like. From from what we know, a lot of the insects within a particular ecosystem might all be threatened by the same thing, right? So if they're all threatened by all threatened by the use and or well, the overuse of insecticides, then if we stopped overusing insecticides in ecosystem A, then we could lay claim to, you know, doing on the ground conservation work for 10,000 species at once. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, those sorts of numbers and things like that 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 are prized and that are important for measuring success uh, can be bumped up possibly by an order of magnitude just by looking at these species, looking at invertebrates in general.
1: We don't need to know the name of every insect to save it. And I think, again, that's something that... Um, maybe people have been conditioned to think that we have to know its name it has to be a koala it has to be a panda it has to be a tiger we have to know what it is to be able to protect it and save it and with insects we don't and nine times out of ten you probably won't ever see most of the insects that are living in your backyard unless you spend every day and night out there looking but they're there and they're all around you and every action that you take and everything that you do is affecting them. So you can take that whole system approach and just go, I care about nature as a whole and I care about protecting nature. I care about protecting country, whatever it is. um, And I'm going to do something to protect everything, every living thing that lives here, whether or not I can see it or know what its name is.
0: You've been listening to the voices of Dr Manu Saunders, who has an excellent blog, by the way, called Ecology is Not a Dirty Word, and I highly recommend reading it. Dr Nick Porch, whose glorious photos can be found on Twitter under the handle Invertifile, and my goodness, the pictures. Make sure you seek him out. And Dr Kate Umbers, who just launched a collaboration with Egg Picnic. Now, no doubt you've seen some of Egg Picnic's sharply lined graphics of Australian fauna and flora around, and their alpine collection, which includes many of the species that Kate and her lab study, it is just the thing. And I'm Anne Jones. And remember, meet me here at the same time next time. I'll be doing my best to take you somewhere else. So Anne, I have a question
2: for you. Are you going to are you going to ensure that off track um, is taxonomically representative <laughs> such that you have ninety-five percent invertebrates doing from now?
0: On? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that is such a good question. That should be how it is, shouldn't it, now that I think of it. I've got a little way to go. Okay, yeah, well, it's going to be an insect theme, invert theme for the next <laughs> 70 years. years in that case. <laughs> yes. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.